morning, church. My name is Edgar Hernandez. I'm an uh, elder candidate at Grace Community Church. That's why you see me up here this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure and blessing to be up here and bring God's word to you. Uh, as I was preparing this week, as I was preparing this sermon, and as I'm waking up this morning, as I'm getting dressed and driving up here, uh, the words of uh, the great reformer John Knox were just coming to my mind. And now as I'm coming up this way, they just kind of ring it in my ear. But uh, he said, uh, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble when I come uh, when, I, when I come to the moment. So uh, I, I think, I mean, I don't think John Knox was a shy guy by any means. I think on the contrary, he was, a, he's known for his, for his courage. He, um, he, he also had a tongue, was uh, difficult to tame, and uh, I think he understood the reality of, of this, that we are gathered this morning, we are we're gathered together in Christ's name, and we are God's assembly. Uh, he, uh, he promised, Christ Jesus promised that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he will be in their midst. So I think you understood that. And, and now, uh, if, if the eternal Son of God is present here this morning, alongside with his ministering angels, and I'm here standing before God's own people, a royal nation, a royal priesthood. So forgive me if I'm a little nervous this morning, but that, 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 that is why. But uh, for, uh, we're, we're going to continue with our theme on, on the five solace. This morning we're going to be looking at solace Christians in Christ alone. And our passage this morning comes forth from First uh, Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5 and 6. Now I'm going to read from verse 4. One all the way to verse eight, just for the sake of uh, context. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, of, of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the, at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, I decided that then that in every place the man should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So that's, a, that's our passage this morning. And I think before we actually jump into the text, it is important for us to understand the uh, theological and the historical context in which we find uh, this particular solemn. Um, the reformers of the Roman Catholic Church, they were, they were in full agreement when it comes to the to the deity of, of Christ, when it comes to the doctrine of the person of Christ. There was no dispute there. The uh, Nicene Trinitarianism, Trinitarianism and Chalcedonian Christology were, were not the issue at all. 
the reformed churches, along with all the reformers, they happily subscribed to to the uh, to the creeds and, conf and confessions of the patristic and, and medieval uh, theologians. Uh, all of them, they 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 were strong defenders of traditional Trinitarianism and Christology. So, uh, when we talk about Solus Christus, the the issue is not the person of Christ. The issue really is the work of Christ. The issue is not the divinity of Christ, it's not the humanity of Christ. The question really boils down to, is Christ's work of atonement sufficient or is something else needed? So that's, that's the question when we're talking about solace Christians. Is Christ's atonement, is his work of redemption enough or do we need something else? So Rome developed a um, this sacramental system, and and they added to the work to the finished work of, of Christ, which in reality resulted into a different gospel, a Paul's gospel, a damning gospel. Um, as I was uh, doing some research and kind of, I wanted to get more familiar with. Okay, what's what's the view? What's the Roman Catholic view? How how do they defend their their position? Because I mean, believe it or not, they are pretty confident that they are drawing their doctrine from the Scripture. So, and I think from what we're going to see in our passage this morning, it's clearly obvious that their doctrine is not correct. But so, how how do they defend their their their, their, their doctrine? And I stumbled upon this article by a Roman Catholic publication. A the author is a uh, He's not a bishop, but I, I think he is, uh, for what it seems, he's a very devout Roman Catholic. At, at, at the very least, he's uh, knowledgeable in, enough and he's credible enough the, that, a, um, that a reputable Roman Catholic publication would have published the article, his article. But in, in his article, he, well, and by the way, he, he, he was born and raised in the Protestant church, out of the Protestant tradition. He now he's become an apostate, has gone fully to the Roman Catholic Church. But um, in his article, he, he started this way by just bringing attention to uh, to a couple of uh, classic paintings of the crucifixion. In these paintings, you see Christ being crucified, you see the crowd around him, you see Mary and Jonathan at his feet, and he, he brings particular attention to uh, to these angels that are surrounding the cross. Some of them are clinging to the cross. And then, what, and then what he says is, like, see, Christ is not alone. We never really encounter Christ alone. Now, like I said, they, they do not, just to be fair to them, they do not draw their view from looking at the paintings, but the paintings themselves are a representation of how they understand uh, uh, what God's word says. So then he goes off to say that, uh, that for example, when, when you see John and Mary at the, uh, at the feet of the cross, He's not alone. When during the incarnation, Mary's there, Joseph is there, during his life, the apostles. So you he start making this, these arguments about how Christ is never alone. And and that and that's really what's stake here. Um, the problem was that uh, that the Roman Catholic Church added a sacramental and sacerdotal system to the work of Christ. In other words, the salvific grace of Christ is mediated through uh, elaborated systems of sacraments and priests. Um, so that's what the reformers were so opposed to. So whenever you think of Solus Christus, 
uh, in the context of the of the medieval church of the reformers, think of the work of Christ. Not so much the um, that humanity, the divinity, the person of Christ, which we all agree it has to be defended in, in our time where we are today. I mean, we, we can we can say some scriptures and defend that position as well, but just to, for you to have in the back of your minds. Solus Christus is the work, the, the finished work of Christ, and, and the, uh, the reformers were very opposed to the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Swingley, for example, he said, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. So, and I think that we don't give enough credit to, to Swingley. I mean, when we think of the, uh, of the Reformation, we think of Martin Luther, and with good reason. But uh, before even Martin, Luther's, again, you had to use a hammer. Swingley was already fighting the existence of the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformation sprung pretty much at the same time in Germany and Switzerland. And, but uh, even before Martin Luther uh, uh, nailed his identified this to the door of, uh, of the church, he, uh, Swingley was, was already fighting the, the, the Roman Catholic Church. Also, in his Article 54, of his uh, 67th article, Swingley says, Christ has borne all our pain and trivial. Hence, whoever attributes to work of penance what is Christ alone, errs and blasphemes God. So you have some strong um, words there. And that's really how the reformers felt. That's really how okay, a good part of what, of what uh, started the, the, the Protestant Reformation. So just, just to summarize, Solus Christus is a proclamation that the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only necessary for salvation, but it is the only way to salvation and sufficient to save the uttermost. So no human works, no merits, no intercessory prayers, no not the baptismal waters, not the bread and the cup, um, not certainly not puny pope, can contribute to Christ's priestly work. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient, and by implication, every work of ourselves is insufficient. Now let's let's actually look at our text this morning, and if, and let's see if Solus Christus is a false teaching of the Roman Catholics claim, or is it that any other view other than this one? is, like the reformers believe, blaspheming against God and uh, as, as our tradition believes. So, I, I had us read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, because there's, there's a lot of context there that we, have, that we have to understand. But first of all, so 1 Timothy is, is one of the pastoral epistles. Um, it's a, a letter that Paul is addressing to Timothy, and a good part of the of the overseas in the Church of Ephesus, but um, just think of this: First Timothy is not a, it's not psalmody, it's not proverbial, it's not prophetic, it's not a it's not revelation, so it's not symbolic. It's it's a letter. So Paul has something very specific in mind that he's he's sending to Timothy, and he has a particular point that he wants to commu communicate to him. So the only sensible question is why is Paul writing this letter? Why, what is he intended to communicate to Timothy? So, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul is telling Timothy to stay in Ephesus, but it says, so that you may command 
certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. Then in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household, household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So what Paul is concerned about is the health of the church. It's false doctrines, false teaching. That's what he is very concerned about. Now, our passage this morning starts by saying, For there is one God. So, in here, Paul is making an elicit echo uh, to, the, to the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. So, it is important to notice that... Uh, uh, this this um, this solution is echo, as we will see in just a moment. But um, just so you know, an allusion it's uh, it's an, an indirect uh, reference. It's an expression that is uh, dependent on an old testament passage, and an echo is something more subtle. So whenever you read, for there is one God, you can you can kind of hear in, your, in the back of your mind, okay, there is one God, the Shema. So it, that's what uh, I'm referring to with uh, with an elusive echo. And, and just as a quick side note, uh, Paul is, he, when, when he mentions, he makes reference to the Shema, even indirectly, he is not reinterpreting the, the Old Testament, the Shema, in light of Christ. Paul does not do reinterpretation. He is interpreting the Shema, the Old Testament, as pointing to Christ, because he understands that the Old Testament, all the way since the beginning, has always been about Christ. So that's something to, important to keep in mind uh, as well. So um, the question now is, why is Paul making an allusion, an echo, to this Old Testament passage, the, the Shema? So we have to think, what, what, what does Paul have in mind? So is it really monotheism, that there is only one God? Is it Trinitarianism? Um, I think... The only way to answer this question is by looking at the context of, of the passage. So let's go back to verse 1, same chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So... How does that verse connect with, for there is one God? Um, I think that Paul's point is it's not really monotheism, which it's a fact. I, I don't think it's also Trinitarianism, which is a fact also. It's not the unity of God uh, with respect to himself, because that doesn't really answer the question of why, why all men should be prayed for. Just because there is one God, because God is unity within Himself, that, that does not really tell us, okay, why should we be praying for all people? I think it has to do with the unity of God with respect to men. So, because God is creator of all men, God is the savior of all men. And you hear me right? Of all men. So, I can see some eyebrows being raised. What do you mean all men? What do you mean God is the Savior of all men? So, let's keep it here with, within the context. It says, Thanksgiving made for all people. 
as all men, as in all types of people. It says here that prayers and intercessions be made for kings and all who are in high positions. So, for people who are in authority. Um, so that's what it refers to all men, all people, all types of people. Um, with ones in authority, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Romans 3, 29 says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So, God at one point entered into covenant with a special people, a particular nation. And now that one covenant God has entered into a covenant, into his covenant of grace, with all types of people. Not with only one people, uh, only anymore, but with all types of people, with all men. So, I think that is why all types of people, all, all types of men should be prayed for. Because the one covenant God is now accessible to all kinds of people. And then, Paul, uh, Paul continues, And there is one mediator between God and men. So, let's go back to the Shema for just a moment. And even just before that, in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we read the, the, we read the Shema, and we see that Moses is presented as a mediator between God and Israel. A, between God and this particular nation. So, for example, if you read Deuteronomy 5, uh, chapter 5, verse, verse 5, and I'll give you some time, you want to look, uh, go over there to that chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5. And it says, uh, I was standing between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh. So, we, we kind of see this mediatorial language. Um, Moses is mediating between God, between Yahweh, and, and Israel. And even more, if you look at the word between that is used in the passage in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, between, it's, it's a derivation of the word mediator that we have here in our passage in 1st Timothy. So, so the language, of, uh, the mediatorial language is there. Moses is presented as a mediator between God and Israel. And it's not only that verse, but if you read uh, Deuteronomy 5, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6, you kind of see this language. You see, you see Moses being in between, trying to bring God and men, and men together. So that's a mediator. That's someone who stands in between, between two parties and bringing, bringing them together. So both chapters in, uh, in uh, 5 and 6, they are, they are, not, they are not disconnected from, it, from each other. In both, we read that Moses was the one mediator between God and Israel. And I think the author is carrying the same point across that Yahweh and Israel are in covenantal relationship with each other. Now, our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but, it, but I think understanding this context is brings a lot, a lot of clarity as, as to why Paul is making this allusion. Why is he kind of making this indirect reference to the Old Testament when we are here in the new, and there's really nothing more than that. But that, that kind of explains why, okay, why all types of men should be prayed for. Because when we when we read, uh, Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, is one we, we are reading about a private conversation between, 
between Yahweh and Israel. It's not for everybody. It's not for every nation. It's a private conversation. And, and here Moses is, is being the mediator, but he's preparing Israel for the one mediator to come. The one who is going to stand between Yahweh and his people from all nations, from all types of people. So this is why Paul is saying that the expected mediator is now here. So when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of under the law. That's Galatians 4.4. That's what Paul has been preaching all about. That's, that's it's in all of, all of his letters. This mediator has now arrived. The expected mediator we have, we have seen in the Old Testament is now here. So, but now, now the only difference is that we have a better mediator. We have a better and a new, a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant. It's not a covenant between only one nation. It's a covenant between Yahweh and his elect from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, all people, all men. So it only follows here to ask, okay, then who is this mediator? And the text says, plain and simple, the man Christ Jesus. So, solus Christus, Christ alone. I mean, isn't that what the text says? The man, the man Christ Jesus? I mean, that is it. He doesn't say the man Christ Jesus and Mary. He doesn't say the man Christ Jesus and, and prayers to the saints. He doesn't say Christ Jesus and the sacraments. He doesn't say anything of that. The text clearly says the man Christ Jesus. This is the mediator. Not, nobody else. Nothing else. So, only Christ Jesus is the middle person who stands between God and man. So this Christus stands between Yahweh and his elect from all nations. And now he is mediating a better and new covenant. Now his elect, who are in their fallen condition, are at a distance. They are alienated. They are they are they, they, they are um, they are unable to receive God's grace. And not only alienated, but they are fully opposed to God. They are in enmity against God. Now, like in, that's why Romans 8 says, but now Christ, Christ was the one who made reconciliation between these two parties. He brought peace between God and man. So, and he did it by humbling himself to mere humanity, by fulfilling the rigors of the law, by by uh, taking the blow of justice, by pouring his blood on the cross, and by dying on it. So, I, I don't know if you understand how offensive it becomes when you have some others, or to use Pauline language, certain ones, bringing a different teaching, a different doctrine. When they are trying to rob Christ from his glory, he did this marvelous, this wonderful, this really impossible work of redemption. And you have some man over here saying, you know what, God, that's not enough. That doesn't quite make it. Like, are you serious? The eternal Son of God took on flesh, died on the cross, and that's, is that not enough? So that's, I mean, that's, this is why Paul is so concerned about the health of the church. You have certain ones coming into Christ's church, to his bride, 
and teaching, not only something that is different, not something that is contrary, but something that is offensive to God because it's it's really an attempt to, to rob Christ from, from his glory, from a glory that only belong, belongs to him. And not only that, but attributing it to sinful, fallen men. So, um, some others might say, oh, it's just doctrine. It's uh, let's all get along. It's uh, just love them. I mean, love. I mean, is, is that your definition of love? When you love to yourself, but uh, it's not God's love. John Calvin said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked, and yet would remain silent. So, it is important, and that's, that's why Paul, that's his major concern. Paul's concern through all, throughout all of his epistles, it's not, it's not a social concerns, it's not political concerns, I mean, which, I mean, they had a, a, a hard time, harder than we have here, but his concern is the health of the church, his concern is against Paul's doctrine, and just, so, a, a couple of quick points here, so, one, is that if you are going to proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only one who can bring uh, men to, to, to the Father, you you are going to be called bigoted. You are going to be called close-minded. You are going to be mocked, ridiculed. You are going to be um, deprived from privileges and even rights. And even as as our, as our society departs from from the uh, Christian tradition and becomes more uh, uh, liberal, and we will see this more and more. So. The question that you have to ask yourself is: Are you are you gonna soften up the message, or are you gonna accommodate the message to, to your particular audience, or will you carry the offense of the cross? Like I said before, I can't imagine the anger of the Father that um, against those who teach a different doctrine. Not only that it's contrary, but just a different doctrine. When he sees his beloved son, who is spending unity with through all eternity, he endures the curse, he dies on a, on a cross, and then some bishop claims that more than that is needed, that his son's sacrifice is not good enough. So, you see, what the Christ accomplished was full salvation. He did not come for partial salvation. He did not make it just, he did not come just to make it possible and then if you try hard enough, then you will get salvation. No, he came to accomplish full salvation. But uh, but the Roman church says, oh yes, Christ, we, yeah, we believe in Christ. We believe in Christ Jesus, but also in his church. We also believe in his church. Or they say we believe in Christ, but also in the you know works through the sacraments. Uh, we believe in Christ, but we believe that his righteousness is infused through his church. That is not full salvation. That is not trusting in Christ completely. This that's, that, that is why they say, no, it's not Christ alone. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, they might not say it, but their doctrine at the end of the day is this. It's Christ. Yes, Christ, but also me. It's also me and my work through the sacraments, maybe. And 
work through the church, through the prayers of the priest, but at the end of the day, it's just me, it's what I do. And second point here is, notice that the mediator is a man. He had to be a man. It, and it's not only to, uh, to fulfill righteousness, it's not only to sympathize with our weaknesses, which he did, but, um, but not because he had to be a man to become our mediator. Only a man could stand between God and man. There was no other way. So Paul is not denying the divinity of Christ. He is merely emphasizing that our mediator had to be one of us, one like us. That's why Moses was there. And even though Moses was not enough, but Christ Jesus had to be a man. So I, I appreciate the, the intent of some people when they say like God, like I'm kind of emphasizing his, his, um, uh, his, his power, that he's all powerful and uh, all knowing. That by saying that God can make, could have made any other way. God could have made, I don't know, a tree fall into a lake, and that would have been salvation he wanted to. No, because God, I mean, it doesn't really matter how many ways up there. What matters is that he made that one way. That's what really matters. So, and the one way is that he had to be truly God and truly man. And this passage emphasizes that he had to be truly man. Like I said, not only to sympathize with the weaknesses, but he had to be more representative because of what Adam did uh, in the garden. He had to be one of us. So this is what Paul is, is really communicating here. Not, again, not denying the deity of Christ, which I mean, I'm thankful that the Roman Catholics do not, uh, do not uh, uh, deny that. Uh, they, are, they have been uh, strong defenders of the deity of Christ as well. So on that respect, uh, we can give them a thumbs up. But, um, um, and then I, I, I just want to, to bring attention here to kind of to ourselves and uh, maybe as a form of application because it becomes real practical to all of us children of the Reformation because a lot of times we may raise our banners or solace Christus uh, banners, Christ alone, but uh, the question is, is it really Christ alone for you? I'm not talking about for a tradition. It's obviously clear that we believe as, 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 a, as a tradition that is Christ alone, Christus Christus. But uh, for you as an individual, is it really Christ alone for you? Because it's so easy to look over our shoulders at, at our Roman Catholic friends and, and just look at them and say, how dare you? How, how, how dare you to try to add something to the finished work of Christ? But uh, I fear that many Solus Christus Christians are now so, not so different. Not by confession, but in practice. Um, see, Christ will never be a partial savior. Your hope that you are in the right standing before God must be fully because of Christ. Because he was born of a woman in the likeness of human flesh because he perfectly obeyed the Father and satisfied the demands of the law because he paid the ransom 
and shed his blood because he resurrected and ascended to the Father, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. So that has to be your hope. If you have a plan B, if just, just in case that's not enough, just in case Christ is not enough, or if you believe that, um, you believe Christ alone, but also the good things that you've done, you might say, like, I, may, I go to church every Sunday, I, I donate so much money, I, uh, I'm a conservative, I fought for the unborn, I homeschool my children. You may say all of this, all those things, which don't get me wrong, they're good and they're beneficial for society. No question about it. Uh, but when you take all of those things and and you and you at the end of the day you put your hope in those things, even partial hope, even thinking that because you do these good things, you might be better off than the ones over there, then it becomes a problem. You you make those things which are good things, you make them into garbage, and then you have secured your place in the in the, on the, in the fires of damnation. Is that serious? And I fear that uh, a lot of us we do not meditate enough in the state of our soul. We have come to this uh, comfort zone where where we are we are we are reformed. We have good doctrine. We have a good church, a healthy church, and we have just gone lazy and just relaxed for a moment, thinking that okay, we might I, I might be okay, but. The Bible says to examine yourselves every single day. So, all of those things that I, ju I, I just mentioned, of the things that you might do, like I said, they're good. But the Bible says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So, it is that important. And I, I think that um, when, this, when this passage says, in the next verse, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When he says a ransom for all, like I think I hope that I made the point clear that yeah, he came to bring salvation to to all, to all men, to all types of people. I remember uh, listening to this um, street preacher uh, from Australia. But funny enough, he was evangelizing here in America. Uh, I believe was in Georgia, maybe. But um, he's, he's out on the streets. He's, he's preaching a message. He, uh, uh, he's telling the truth. And then uh, back in the corner, you, you, he has a hacker coming along. And he can hear him like, yelling, stop already, as he gets closer and closer. And then when the heckler comes, and he, can, he cannot ignore him anymore. He's right in front of him. He says, okay, fine, uh, what, what, what's, what's your question, sir? And the heckler says, I have a question that not, not, not a single Christian has been able to answer me. The street preacher gets like, okay, what? Uh, he gets kind of nervous, he's like, okay, I, I'll, I'll do my best to answer your question. And the heckler says, you guys say that Christ died for all men. He, he came to, to save the whole world. But you also say that he sends people to hell. So my question is, how is that possible? Did he or did he not save all men? Did he or did he not save them from hell? So how can he save all men and then punish them again after he saved them? 
and the the street picture, the street picture was like ah yes you you have not met a lot of people from my tradition because we do not believe that God has saved all men as all individuals. We believe that God has saved all men from all nations, as in 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 general. God, God has not saved every single individual person. He has saved people from all nations. So when you read who gave himself a ransom for all, it's for that it's that type of language. You have to, you have to follow the same the same the same uh, the same context. Kind of kind of hurts me a little bit just when I when I hear some uh, of our uh, Armenian brothers who who get this passage and they try to make the argument that uh, uh, against uh, against uh, Calvinism and it's. I mean, it kind of bothers me because I mean, you, you don't realize what you're doing. You you are you are getting this. This is probably the worst passage you could grab to make your position, because if what you're saying is true, that God desires all men, like in every single individual person, to be saved, and then we follow the context, and we and we read that there's one mediator between God, man, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That means that. Christ is the mediator for every single individual person that has lived and will ever live. So that means that universalism is true, but uh, that is not what the passage is about. So we have to keep that all people within context. So and it, I think when we keep it within the context of the Shema, what Paul is saying here, because it says, uh, for there is one, one God, so that for has to indicate that okay, this is this is why we should be praying for all men, and it is again because Christ Jesus had has uh, has become the, the the highest priest. He now he has brought this new covenant in which all men from all all nations are, are can be made part of. Now he select is from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, and I I want to finish with this. And just say to you that Christ will not deceive you. Um, it will never come the day when you say, I haven't trusted my soul to, to him, but he was not able to save it. So do not be afraid to cast your soul into his arms and forsake every other hope. If you feel the need of the Savior, you may come to Christ. He will not reject you. The, the, the gates of mercy are wide open for everyone who desires to be saved, for all men, for all people. He will prom He will do what He promised. He will stand between the Father and between you. Now, sure, the, the, the accuser will come and, and, and try to tell you of all your dark and, and secrets and, and all your sins that are black. He will try to come, but he has no power because Christ has overcome that. So no matter how dark your sins might be, because this one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, has made a promise. He will fulfill it. So there is no need for plan B. There is no need for Christ Jesus. Yeah, and I also pray enough. I go to church enough. I help others enough. There is no need for that. You just have to just entrust yourself truly and fully to, to this person.
whenever you get up uh, up there to the gates of heaven and and you are asked like why should you, you should be letting you your answer has to be just because of the man Christ Jesus that is the only good answer and it only takes a moment of reflection to for us to examine ourselves and see if truly we're trusting in Christ Jesus Acts 4 uh, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is one, no other name under heaven, even among men, by which we must be saved. So, dear church, let us not be distracted with uh, false hopes. I get it. It is tempting to try to look for comfort in what's in front of our eyes, in what we can perceive with our senses. Um, but, uh, let us repent from trusting in outward ceremonies. Repent from um, trusting in, in our Reformed tradition, in our good works. Uh, let us repent from, from trusting in princes and chariots. Our hope is in Christ. And let us, as a church, not abandon or the love that we had at first. And let us also extend that invitation to everyone because as verse 6 says he is a ransom for all for all men for all types of men so the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient and nothing else is needed nothing else you can bring to the table only Christ Jesus so let's go to the Lord in prayer Heavenly Father, we bring glory to your name. We have a good mediator who has redeemed us, who has brought salvation. He accomplished full salvation, not partial salvation. Lord, help us to trust in your Son alone. For the ones who have not made Christ their only hope, we ask you, Lord, we beg of you that you make them come to their senses, that they may see that their works, their sacrifices, their prayers, they are not good enough. They, they will never be good enough because they are not just, it's not just a mere separation from you, Lord. It's an infinite distance, Lord, between you and us, Lord. We ask you, Father, that you help us as your church, that you forgive us for trusting in anything else other than your Son, Jesus Christ. It is so tempting, Lord, and we ask you for forgiveness because we all have fallen into this trap. When we get distracted, when things get difficult, we get distracted. Oh, Father, we long to see the day when we will be free from the bondage of sin fully and entirely, when our flesh will be no more, when we will see you face to face, and we will have this beatific vision, Lord, and we will be free from all, all our sins, all of our chains, all of our constraints, and we will be able to finally, Lord, worship you freely and truly in the way that you desire, in spirit and in truth. Help us, Lord, to to extend the invitation of the cross to 
to everyone to to make sure that everyone from all nations, all types of men, are able to hear this message, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the work of your, your Holy Spirit that he has done through, the, through your church in all of these years, Lord, all the way from the Reformation, Lord. That, that work, Lord, keeps continuing impacting us, Lord, and we've been able to, to continue thinking and meditating on that work, Father, that we may continue that work of Reformation today, because today we still have to fight the same fight against this teaching that something else is needed. But we also have other fights to fight, Lord. We have to fight for the deity of Christ. We have to fight for the humanity of Christ. Help us, strengthen us, Lord. And please, Lord, forgive us for our sins. We surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.